wanted to display that on that canvas, he first of all starts by covering the canvas in a dark black covering. And what is that background, that dark black covering? Well, it's there in verses 1 to 3, which we looked at last Sunday. And it's the picture of how we stand before God, apart from Christ. It's a description of our spiritual standing before God. It shows us that we are dead in our, in our sins, totally dead, unable to respond to know God in any way. We learned as well that we were, before Christ came into our lives, we were sinful by nature. And because we sinned, we, we, we were naturally sinful, we wanted to sin, we enjoy sin, we are naturally drawn to sin. And we also learned that every one of us was dominated and uh, moulded, really, by the world around us, which is in control of Satan. It's under Satan's influence. So even our best thoughts and uh, best desires, etc., are, are influenced by the world around us. And we were without God. And Paul says, because of that, we were condemned. By God, we are under God's condemnation and we are heading, or we were heading to hell. We were heading to God's judgment. Now, that description, and we, we, we looked at this in more detail last week, that description is true of all of us. We were like that. Some may still be in that condition if we're not saved by Christ, but we were all like that. Whether we were brought up in a a Christian home or a non-Christian home, whether we were brought up in a religion or a non-religious way, whether we lived a decent life, a nice life, a morally upright life, or we lived a totally opposite type of life, and if, you, if for a better word, an evil life or a, 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 a very immoral life. It doesn't matter. All of us are born dead in sin with that sinful nature. And because of that deadness, we, we couldn't do anything about it. We, we couldn't reach God. We couldn't, we couldn't even cry out to God in a right way unless God did something. We were dead. We, we couldn't bring ourselves back to life. A corpse can't bring itself back to life unless something from the outside resuscitates it. And that's the dark canvas of verses 1 to 3. But now comes the colour, verse 4 and verse 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In verse 4, what are the first two words? On, in the New King James, at least. Is it up there? But God. Aren't those great words? But God. God did something. Here's the great answer to our spiritual death. There's only one thing that a dead person needs, and that's resurrection. And God brings about a spiritual resurrection 
in our lives. One day, that will be a physical resurrection. But he brings about a spiritual resurrection. And only God can do that. You know, that's only something that God can initiate. No, nobody else can do that. We can't bring it about. A, a, a dead person, spiritually dead person, cannot resurrect themselves. And God has done that for us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond to God. And then God wonderfully injected his life into us. But God, in his mercy, he stepped in to bring us out of darkness into life. He wanted to show us mercy and grace. What did he do? He, he started to awaken in us desires for him. He started to put within us a, a sense of need. He, he put within us a longing to know God, to know forgiveness. He started to put within us a conviction of our desperate need of forgiveness. And he gave us the gift of faith and he, he put within us desires to reach out in that, with that faith to Christ. And he put within us that conviction that Christ is the truth, the way, the life. As someone said, he turned the zombie into a new creation, full of life, eternal life. And that's what we needed. So when we were beyond hope, God stepped in. But God, great words, and what a difference they make. Now, why does he do that? Why does God do that? What makes him do something like that? When he could wash his hands of us, he could walk away, he could, he could just, just sort of screw everything up, as it were, and start afresh. Why does he do all of those things? Well, in these four verses, verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, there are three, I'm going to follow the theme, there are three wonderfully vibrant, bright, coloured words that describe God and his character. Well-known words, but wonderful words. And we're going to look at them as they come in the passage that we read. So verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy. Are you a merciful person? You show mercy to others. God is rich in mercy. Mercy means holding back from what we deserve. It's not giving us what we deserve to receive. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve to be judged by God. We deserve to be under God's judgment forever because of our sin. But God in his mercy didn't leave us in that condition. Mercy speaks of what God doesn't do to us, even though we deserve it. A lady had a portrait painted and afterwards she was pretty critical of the painting. and uh, She was complaining to the artist and she said, I just don't think you've done me justice. And the artist replied, Madam, what you need is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> and what, what we need is not justice, we need mercy. I don't think he'd get another commission from her, by the way. What we need is mercy. Some years ago now, I was driving along, 
in my car in the 30 mile an hour limit. I must have been doing just over. Too late, I spotted the policeman with his radar gun pointed at me. And as I drove past, the policeman signaled three zero, three zero, and he let me go. And my faith in the British Bobby was restored. <laughs> I tell you, dealt with mercy. We need mercy. God has dealt with us mercifully. I think Psalm 103, verse 10, is as good a definition or description of mercy as there is. Psalm 103 and verse 10. He, God, has not dealt with us according to our sins. That's mercy. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's mercy. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be judged. We deserve to be condemned. But God is a merciful God. In fact, he's rich in mercy. Rich, the word rich in the uh, Ephesians passage, it, it speaks of limitless. It, it, it's a word that means abundant, boundless, exhaustless. So God is rich, abounding, abundant in mercy. Which means if God is merciful, we should be merciful, shouldn't we, towards others. If you're a Christian... We should not be harsh in our judgment of others. We all tend to want justice done to others and mercy for ourselves. So let's not be quick to judge. Let's not be harsh in our judgment, especially of other Christians. You know, let's, let's look on other, other people's shortfalls and failings and weaknesses with mercy. Because that's Christ-like. And especially when it comes to judging other people's motives. It's very easy, isn't it, to, 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 to assume why, why people do things. But no one knows anybody else's motives. So we, we should be merciful in our thoughts and our attitudes towards each other. Towards other people. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful... For they shall obtain what? Mercy. So if I want to be, receive mercy from God, then I need to be merciful. We need to become the mercy of Christ to others. The second uh, beautiful, brightly coloured word is love. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us. God is love, the Bible tells us, isn't it? Love is, its, is God's intrinsic value, if you like, character. It underlies everything. So out of his love comes his grace. Out of his love comes his mercy. Those are expressions of his love. And our whole salvation is based on that. It's based on his love. And because of that love, God reaches out even when we are in our sin. He reaches out when we're still sinful. You see, in, in our sin, we are, we are opposite everything that is attractive to God. 
The Bible says that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot even look on sin. God hates sin. God won't have sin in his presence. So apart from God, and apart from Christ, we are naturally sinful. We've seen all of that. We're godless. We're ungrateful. We are rebellious. We are unholy. We're stained. You, You name it, that's us. We're naturally gripped by ourself, by self-centeredness, and by nature we are children of wrath, yet God never stopped loving us even in that state, because God is love. God loves those who, are, who, who in their lives are exactly the opposite to what God is like. He, he keeps loving. I mean, it, it, we know something about love, don't we? We, we know what it is to love. But I think our love is so different to God's. We love what's lovable. We often love what attracts us. We we love what blesses us, if you like. We love what fits into our view of what should be loved. We love what suits us. We love what merits our love. And it's true, isn't it? You know, certain... I suppose certain people appeal to us, so you'd say you're attracted to that, that person, more than another. Which is totally unlike the love of God. The immense love of God can be seen in that he gave his son to die on the cross for those who were the exact opposite of everything attractive to him. I think love can be best measured by the cost of that love. Just imagine, if you can, a multimillionaire. And that multimillionaire sees a man in poverty, extreme poverty. He doesn't know the man. He he, he has no personal interest in him. And he may even find him offensive to look at. It would be a good thing, wouldn't it, if that man did a very generous thing and gave that man in poverty a gift. Just suppose he gave him £10,000. Ooh, that's a lot. That would be a very generous gift, very commendable. But in truth, it wouldn't cost that multimillionaire anything to do that. It wouldn't affect his wealth or his standard of living. And yet it would still be a great kindness. Especially if that man had done some wrong to that person. To the wealthy man. So what would add value to that gift? Well, it would be if this millionaire made a sacrifice to help the man. To help the man in his situation. Made a personal sacrifice. You see, the measure of our love is seen ultimately in what it costs us. Now, that that doesn't take away the act of generosity and the act of goodness and kindness. But when it involves personal suffering and loss, then that act of love becomes immeasurably greater, doesn't it? And of course, that's the sort of love that God has for you and me. 
How was the love of God costly? In Romans 8, verse 32, there's a very, I think, a very striking phrase which helps just bring this out for me. Eight, Romans 8, 32. It speaks of God the Father. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, before sending Jesus, his son, before sending his son into this world, the father knew what suffering he was going to have to endure. He knew all about the rejection that his son would experience. He knew all about his son would have, to, would have to take our place and take the punishment for our sin and would be crucified and take that cruel punishment on the cross. He knew that his son would be God forsaken and he would have to turn his back on his, God, on his son. He knew all about that and yet he did not spare him. He did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Now that's the measure of God's love. There's an old hymn, and you, some of you might know this hymn. It's by a man called Frederick Lehman, which for me, it captures, it's wonderful words. It captures the breathtaking scope of the love of God in some ways. It's oldie language, all right? It speaks of scribes and parchment and quills. And I was thinking, okay, we've got international folks, well, even our... Younger folk might not understand it, but sometimes you don't even have to understand words to get the scope of something. So here's the hymn. I'm not going to sing it. It's okay. Here's the hymn. It goes like this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. Could we with ink, with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor have I... We'll do it on that one, okay? Shall I start again? No, I'll go. I'm halfway through it. It says, Could we with ink, with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to the sky. Okay, so the gist of that is that if the oceans were filled with ink and that ink was used to write about the love of God, the oceans would be drained dry, basically. God's love is beyond our comprehension. That's what Paul said, wasn't it? He prayed that you, that I, might be able to comprehend the height, the depth, 
the breadth, the width of the love of Christ. Which is amazing, which is wonderful. And that amazing love has been poured into your heart and my heart. It's, it's been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The moment you became a believer in Christ and put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit took that love and he poured it into our hearts and he's been pouring it in ever, ever since. And Paul said, didn't he, for the love of Christ compels me. So just as mercy of, the mercy of God should ch- 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 sort of influence my life and make me a merciful God, the love of God poured into my life should make me a loving person. Should, I should share that love with others. I should be the expression of love towards others. The love of God. And then the third richly colored word is grace. Let me read verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, next week is it? I'm not sure when when Jez is is next week. He's going to be taking the next part, which is all about grace, for by grace you save. So this is just a taster. I hope I'm not going to pinch your sermon, Jez. Why do Christians get so excited by the word grace, by the thought of grace? We sing about it in our songs, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love. Even churches are named with grace in the title. We've got one a couple of miles away, Chapel of Grace. There are grace churches. People call their children grace. What's so special about grace? Why is it so amazing? Well, we've seen how mercy... Is God withholding what we deserve? Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. It's just the ex- not the exact opposite, but it, it, it complements. So mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace, he gives us what we do not deserve. You know, we, we, we don't deserve the favor of God. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve new life in Christ. We don't deserve those things, and yet God in his grace, full of grace towards us, gives us those things in Christ because of his grace. So mercy pities and holds back, grace pardons and releases. Because of his mercy, he withholds judgment. Because of his grace, he forgives and cleanses. You see, God, God doesn't look down and sort of look around and he says, right, now, oh, there's a good guy, I'll, I'll serve that person. There's a good and he's a decent, look, I'll, I'll serve that person. I think that's a terrific woman there, she, she, she's great, she, she'll, she'll add to my church, I'll serve that person. It's nothing to do with what we've done or how we stand. It's grace, grace. None of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve God's mercy. 
And so he says, it's nothing to do with you. Isn't it God good? He knows how incredibly self-centered we are, how incredibly proud we are. And so, you know, if, if, if it was anything to do with me, I get to heaven, I'd, I'd just say, well, that's great. Done it. <laughs> if it's not like that, none of us can boast. And the grace of God is so amazing that one day, when you get to heaven by God's grace, you will be in, as it were, God's display cabinet. You will be there proclaiming through your life the amazing riches of God's grace. Forever and ever and ever. The church will proclaim loudly the wonders of God's grace. That's what he says. Verse 6 and 7. I'm going to read in the NIV. Verse 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ... And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order. What? That you might be saved? No. Well that's part of it. But in order that in the coming ages. He might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are going to be the exhibition for eternity of the grace of God. To all of the eternal and wonderful creatures, all of the angels and all of heaven, the church will be there displaying God's grace. And people will be praising God because you and I are there. And they'll be amazed. It's all by grace. And what has God's mercy and love and grace resulted in? What's the outcome? Again, let me just read verses 4 to 6. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, here it is, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Now that's what we needed, wasn't it? We were dead. What does he do? He made us alive. Verse um, six, verse 5. He raised us up with him. Verse 6. We are united with Christ. Now this gets to the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. God raised you up. He put you into Christ, united you with him, so that you share in his death and resurrection. And so now, you and I are seated in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms with Christ. Warren Wearsby says, our physical position may be on earth, but our spiritual position is in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just one verse, I think, or a couple of verses, actually, a couple of passages that express this. In, cha in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 5. I think this probably explains it better than anywhere else. Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that we, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that means immersed into Christ Jesus, 
were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. That means this. When Jesus went into that grave, that was for us. When he came out of the grave, that was for us. God applied that to you and me. This is the miracle of the, of the gospel. This is Christianity at its heart. God applied Christ's death and resurrection to us. Don't have to look at this, but Paul says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We're so united with Christ. Whatever happened to Christ, God says, it happened to you. That's how God views us. And so, friends, my whole standing, your whole standing as a believer is in Christ. That's your status. That's your position. I am a new person, a new creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I, I'm, I'm, the same, I'm the same person with the same personality, and yet I'm a new person in Christ. Life is different. I live in the same place, yet I belong to a new kingdom. I have a new spirit in me. My life has changed from within because I share the life of Christ. Because I am in Christ, I'm no longer under the power of sin. Now, friends, I, this is such a truth. The Christian must say this. We can't say anything less than this. Because the Bible says it. In fact, it is the key to victory in our Christian lives. We have been raised with Christ. We share his life. It's because of that we can, have, we can be overcomers over every sin and temptation in our lives. The power is there. Look at what he goes on in Romans chapter 6. He goes on to say, because of all of that, because we're united with Christ. This is what he says, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God, as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying don't let sin reign over you. Don't let sin grip you because now you are in Christ. You're sharing that life of Christ. And we need to stand. 
reckon, count what is true to be true. And by faith, God's power will flow through us as we do that. And in that strength, we then say no to temptations. We then say no to those things that bind us or hold us or might grip us. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Is there anything that, any sin that reigns in your life? My life? Is there anything that holds us and grips us? Standing on God's word and the truth of God's word brings freedom. That's who I am in Christ. I am united with him, dead to sin, alive to Christ. So whatever it is, now, you know what we're like? Just say, I'm thinking of every day, ordinary life. Here, here we are, we're facing relationships and and. We are tempted to be hurt by something or someone and offended and, or to retaliate and whatever it is. And, and that can rule us, that, that sort of thing can hold us. Or it might be some, it might even be some lustful thoughts. You know, I've been chatting with a friend, Tony and myself, I've been chatting with a Christian friend who's, who's set up a, a group to, to help those who are stuck in pornography and with pornography. And uh, knowing that within the church and outside of the church, of course, but within the church, there are those who really struggle in that area because it's so accessible, so easy to get hold of. And it's, it might not be a, an addiction, but, it, but it's something that grips us or something that holds us. Or it might be something that's j just sort of things like worries and anxieties that grip hold of us and things like that. Or, or, it, or it, it, it could be anything. It might be a relationship that we're struggling with. And, and this is where this is actually practical living. The, these truths are so vital that we learn how to stand on what is true in God's word. In those areas of my life, I need to learn to, to, to know that I am dead to that in Christ. And I reckon on that and stand on it. And because I'm alive in Christ, as I rely on him, his power will give me the power to say no. So that those things will not rule in my life. We can be free. Whatever that is. And to do that, I need to be able to say, I recognize God that that is wrong. If it's sin, if it's a weight that I shouldn't be involved, a weight that's weighing me down, or something I shouldn't be doing, or something that dogs me and just I cannot get free from, that needs to be confessed to God. And I need to acknowledge that it's wrong. And I need to say, Lord, I need to, your freedom. I need your forgiveness. And I need to be set free. And I stand on what you have done in Christ. You've set me free. Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So don't, don't look to your shortcomings. Don't look to your failures. Don't, don't look to those things that would sort of cloud us and, and, and cause a cloud to come over us. Look to who you are in Christ. And stand in that. Reckon on that. Reckon that to be true. Trust God to give you the power that you need to overcome every sin. And rely on that power. 
God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So friends, our God is a God of grace and mercy and love. Amazing grace. I wonder, have you ever responded to that in faith? Have you ever responded to the mercy of God and the love of God and the grace of God by putting your whole trust in Jesus? Have you ever come to that place? Until we respond, the love and the mercy and the grace of God is sort of out there. It doesn't impact us. It doesn't change us. But when you respond, that's when God begins to change you. When you put your trust in Christ and ask Christ to be your saviour. And if you've never done that, why not today? For God so loved the world, you and me, he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, isn't that great, whosoever? Whatever life we've done, whatever life we've lived. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So put your trust in Christ today. If you've never done that, reach out to him, ask him for forgiveness, and say that you really want him to be your saviour. And you'll receive that grace and mercy and love in your life. Amen. We're going to sing about that amazing, wonderful grace in our closing song. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing.